0: what's up storytellers for those of you participating in NaNoWriMo congratulations on making it 23 days into the challenge I'd love to hear about your progress many of our listeners are checking in with each other in our private Facebook group so come join the conversation at facebook.com slash groups slash 88 cups of tea we really have the most encouraging and supportive members in our group so you don't want to miss out on this loving community can't wait to hang out with you over at facebook.com slash groups slash 88 cups of tea Before we jump into introductions for today's new guest, I wanted to thank our listeners for taking the time to subscribe to our podcast on iTunes and leaving a rating and a review. S. Daniel McPhail recently rated our show five stars and left a very sweet and heartwarming review titling it a must listen for all creatives and continued to write it took all of one episode for 88 Cups of Tea to become one of my favorite podcasts. Yin Cheng is a fantastic host, upbeat and encouraging to her listeners, and insightful enough to ask the guest wonderful questions about both inspiration and craft. It's tough to listen and not feel inspired to create. No matter your level as a writer, this podcast will help and inspire you. Oh my gosh, thank you so much for taking the time out of your day to leave your uplifting review. I had the biggest smile on my face, and I'm so thrilled to have you in our community. Thank you again. And on to today's guest, we have the multi-talented author, illustrator, and screen printer, Greg Pozzoli on the show with us. He's the author of Goodnight Owl, a Theodore Seuss Geisel Honor Book, Templeton Gets His Wish, Number One Sam, and The Watermelon Seed, which received the Theodore Seuss Geisel Award. In this episode, Greg shares really helpful advice on creating brevity in your picture books and walks us through his writing process and how his method can help you develop your story ideas. We discuss the importance of standing out in the publishing market by promoting in a way that authentically shows your personality and getting your artwork noticed in the industry by sending out postcards of your illustrations to editors and art directors. We get into the nitty-gritty about preparing your portfolio to be successful at writing conferences, what a picture book dummy is and how it can help you showcase your work to editors and publishers, and how to approach query letters in the picture book world. Further into the episode, we discuss why diversification is the key to earning money while supporting your storytelling dreams, and how Greg creates silkscreen-style illustrations. Now let's jump right in. Hey everyone, I am so excited. Greg, how are you today?
1: I'm good, how are you?
0: I am so good. So you're in Philly right now?
1: I am. I locked myself in a closet in my house to get rid of the street noise so that we can have as good a recording as possible.
0: I was observing how good your sound is coming off.
1: It's my nerd room, (laughs) my video game stuff. My wife doesn't have to be bothered with it. If I ever start my own podcast, I guess I know where to record it, right? (laughs)
0: Yes, exactly. We have a lot of listeners who are so excited because some of them are working on their own picture books. A lot of them love picture books, myself included. I have your book with me right now, your latest one, The 12 Days of Christmas. I love your book. It is so heartwarming. Oh, thank you. And it is so charming. I love the illustrations and the text, of course, the words. Before we jump into The 12 Days of Christmas. I always <laughs> love asking how you fell in love with storytelling and for you specifically how you fell in love with illustrating and writing.
1: First of all thank you very much about the book and I can't take credit for the words obviously because it's the Christmas carol but I did have a lot of fun with the pictures so thank you very much for the kind words. For me I've been drawing and making stories since I was a kid. I do school visits a lot, visiting elementary schools, talking with large groups of kids a lot. They often ask me when did you make your first book and I I tell them I made my first book when I was three. I didn't know how to write yet, but I would draw pictures and my dad would ask me what's happening in this story. And then he would write down whatever story I came up with. So my first book I made was called The Dragon Chick and I was three years old. Luckily, I have nostalgic parents. My dad was able to keep that along with a lot of other drawings I made as a kid in a box at his house. I still have access to those. I really fell in love with children's books when I was in graduate school Mm. and rediscovered a lot of classics I wasn't exposed to as a kid. I had a mentor there whose mother and aunt both worked in publishing in some capacity. So she had an amazing collection of kids' books that are out of print now or were just a little darker or creepier (laughs) or weirder than a lot of the stuff that was getting made at the time. And so she turned me on to Tommy Ungerer and some of the Marie Sendex stuff I hadn't known mm. about, William Steig and Ruth Krauss and Margaret Wise Brown and all of these people who I've since come to admire and have become my heroes. Short story, I guess, is I've always been drawn to it, but it wasn't until grad school that I really solid career, something I wanted to dedicate my life to.
0: When you said that you started drawing and illustrating your own things when you're much younger, do your parents have any background in drawing or did you see anyone around you that was illustrating? My grandpa's an artist. When I was younger, I would follow in my grandpa's footsteps and sketch and draw, but I'm horrendous. I am no way near anything as talented as you. But for me, I had someone to look up to and that would inspire that creative side in me and really push me. My mom is really artistic too. My dad, not so much. He's very more on the business this end. Mm -hmm.
1: So what about you? It's funny because neither of them is an artist per se. They didn't really follow it as their career and in their education. My dad is a social worker. He's since retired, but he was a social worker for 40 years. He's very artistic. He made a lot of the furniture in our house. What? Yeah, he's a great woodworker. Whenever I need a shelf, He's the one I call.
0: You're so lucky.
1: (laughs) He would take sculpture classes and photography classes. He was just kind of like a jack of all trades. He also taught karate for 15 years. It was very inspiring and encouraging, but it wasn't as though we would really sit down and draw together. Sometimes we would paint little wooden ornaments or we'd make our own Christmas ornaments, stuff like that. But he wasn't a draftsman in the same way that I think of myself. My mom was really encouraging in that she read to me a lot. And she would sign me up for stuff. She would sign me up for art things. Or if there was something going on at the library, she would make sure I was there. And she was there through some of my defeat as a kid, too. I remember there was a movie theater near our house where they had coloring contests. Believe it or not, Disney coloring pages. Oh, nice. And you would color them in and then they would have a contest. The manager, whoever, would pick somebody and they'd win free tickets to a movie. And it was just, you know, a black and white drawing from Snow White or something.
0: That sounds
1: fun. Yeah, they were fun. And I loved coloring them. And I would take forever on them getting them perfect. And I remember my mom and I being told that they weren't going to accept one of my entries. They accused my mom of doing it and (gasps) (gasps) entering.
2: That's the
0: best compliment ever, no?
1: Looking back on it, I can sort of laugh at it. But I was crushed as a kid. I can't participate. And I think my mom bought me movie tickets anyway. (laughs) She was really encouraging of that. Stuff as well. So while she wasn't an artist herself, she, I think, saw the potential that I had. And I think most parents, they were both apprehensive when I said I was going to art school. I think my dad said, well, what kind of job can you get? with?" Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. <laughs> Which is a fair question. But they're both, I think, very proud of me.
0: Of course, okay. they're like, look at this. This is from my award winning son, who's an illustrated <laughs> and a brilliant artist. <laughs>
1: yeah. And 12 Days of Christmas, you can see that the half title page or the copyright page is dedicated to my dad. And I had another book come out this year that was written by Margaret Weiss. Brown. And that one's dedicated to my mom. So those are the ones that they seem to most often <laughs> put in
0: for. I'm looking at it right now on the left side of the page. Right. And there's was a red background when it says for dad. That's so sweet.
1: You know, there are tons of super talented people who for whatever reason can't make it work in kids books. And it's not because they're not talented or hardworking. It's definitely a gamble. I've been very lucky. And I'm the first to say that I actually studied English lit in undergrad and then oh. studied printmaking and book arts in grad school. And I think that was my attempt at taking a quote real major. I could at least try my hand at writing or editing if uh, making my own books didn't work out. Do
0: you feel your undergrad degree really helped or do you think you could have done without it?
1: I think it really helped when you're paying those student loans back. <laughs> you're
2: like, damn You damn wonder
1: it. how much this <laughs> was worth it. I love language and I love words and I love writing as much as I love illustrating. I think that picture books for me are the perfect medium for what I want to do because to me really representing Present this marriage of text and image that's hard to get in any other format. The words can say something and the pictures can complement that or they can brush up against it and rub against the words in a way that is sort of unique to picture books. It was good for me and I taught part-time at a college for seven years or so and art school is expensive and a lot of kids would come in and say I don't know why I'm here I don't know what is this ever gonna end up as you know what are these skills how are they ever going to translate and the way I usually would describe it would be that you know you're just sort of filling a pantry with skills and these skills you'll be able to pull them out at certain times throughout your life and make use of them and I think looking back at a path, it makes sense that, yeah, I studied English literature, and then I was in AmeriCorps, and then I went to grad school, and then I did this and this and this, and it all looks like a straight line when you're looking back, but I was definitely floundering
0: (laughs) (laughs) some real talk over here.
1: What the heck is going on and am I ever going to be able to make this work and answering phones and making sandwiches, those kinds of in-between jobs.
0: I would love to know what subject you you teach or the art school?
1: I occasionally teach illustration, sometimes children's book illustration, but I most of the time would teach screen printing. As like I said, I have a degree in printmaking, a master's degree in printmaking, and Screen printing is my first love for visual art. Even though I don't screen print the art for my books anymore, they're done digitally on a Wacom tablet. I still really try to get that silkscreen look just because I love that art style. But that's why I use limited spot colors. My books are usually printed in only three or four colors. And it helps sort of give that old school aesthetic that I love a lot.
0: I love screen printing. And I saw that you have an Etsy shop. I'm blown away. You do such beautiful work and it speaks to the heart. Every time I look at your work, I feel like my heart smiles. That's <laughs> what you do. That's what you do Thank for you people. so much. Please do check out Greg's work and also be sure to check out his Etsy shop. You guys are going to be blown away. By the way, Greg, a lot of our listeners have children. So this is perfect for them because not only do they love reading picture books for themselves, but they love finding picture books for their own children as well. Correct me if I'm wrong, okay, because I'm not in your field. I may be ignorant about it, but for me as a consumer, I feel like there's a lot more ways and technology that screen printers, like people with the skill of screen printing, can deliver their work and deliver their art.
1: I'm by no means an expert on the field or sort of what's available. I can only speak from my own experience. But I think that the internet in general has leveled the playing field in a lot of ways where people can be accessible and can be found if you have an Instagram account and Mm -hmm. know know how to use hashtags to some degree, You can be discovered in that way. At the same time, it's a double-edged sword in a sense, because it also means that you're in a sea with a whole bunch of other people too. The screen printing thing is not my main business. It was never, even when I was teaching it, was never really the main way that I was making money, I was teaching to stay involved at the university where I mm-hmm. went to graduate school and just to meet young artists. When it became too much of a time commitment and I needed to devote myself to the books, I had to let it go. But the screen printing that I do now is mainly to sell small prints or cards or do promotional stuff for an upcoming book. That's really been my focus. But the people that I see who are able to, I think, make the bulk of their living through selling small things like enamel pins or Prints Or mugs and stuff like that. I'm always amazed at how they're able yeah. to do it. I know Lisa Congdon and Phoebe Wall are two artists who I admire very much. And they're so tenacious and so talented. And they're just really good at getting their stuff out there and putting it in front of people and still delivering exactly what their audience wants. I am mm-hmm. a lot like my dad I think in a way where I want to do this thing and I'm kind of bored with it and I want to try this other thing <laughs> and it's yeah. it's hard for me to focus enough I think to maintain a store that can deliver at that same level that other artists are. I love making enamel pins and all that stuff. You're right. It's the availability of it. I mean, you can just do Google search custom enamel pin. Yeah. And in four days or five days, you could have it sitting in front of you. Exactly. You could have a prototype in front of you. It's great in that way. It's pretty amazing.
0: But you also brought up a really good point that it becomes so saturated now because of the availability. And that's something I didn't think of as a consumer. For me, as a consumer, I'm like, yes, more options when I try and see it from your point of view. And also, My grandpa's point of view, if I brought up your point to him, he would also absolutely go on about that too.
1: People want to go with something they know or something they trust as consumers. I totally get that. I think it's the same part of why we see movie trilogies
2: Mm, rather mm -hmm. than
1: new or remakes of old movies rather than new material. It's the same with children's books. There's so many books published and I would never want to deprive someone of having a book published. I want my book (laughs) to be published. I think we should keep publishing as many as we are, but it's hard to sometimes stand out in the crowd. I think when there's 5,000 picture books being published, it's really tough. The screen printing stuff, just tying it back. That is for me, the way that I've tried to stand out. I'm doing a big promo for 12 days of Christmas where I'm Wrapping the books up, and I've got little baker's twine. That's so cute. I made little cards and stickers and buttons, and sending them out to influencers like yourself, and just trying to get people to generate buzz. It is tough. You have to sort of advocate for yourself. You know,
0: it is tough, but I think then when artists like you do things like that and add so much heart into the story behind your product and not just giving the book. That's what makes you stand out a lot. You're right. There's so many products out there. There's thousands and thousands. But then when I get to see a bit of your heart behind the product, there's a real human being here and I am rooting for you. When I first thought about you know, picture books. I'm like a little nervous saying this, but I did think this is probably one of the easier things to create. I looked into it closer, breaking things down. I'm like, this is hard. I am very long winded, I talk a lot. So it's extremely difficult, especially for people like me because brevity is so crucial and so important and you're hacking down to the most important text and words and balancing it enough with the illustration. I am now convinced that picture books is probably one of the most difficult things to create and to write and to illustrate. I can't even.
1: We can continue the (laughs) conversation then.
0: (laughs) I know, right? Now will you stay on? Please don't hang up.
1: (laughs) I think you're right. I think that that is one of the harder things for people that are, for anyone in your audience who might be trying to break into kids' books or write their own picture book, for example. Getting the words down to just what you need i mean obviously you want to still use the right words you want to use the words that sound beautiful to you and that make the story work as well as it should in your eyes and not cut things just for the sake of cutting them but if there's anything inessential if the words are saying something similar to what the pictures are saying the example i always say is you don't need to say the boy sat under a shady tree near a river In a picture book, you could say Adam was reading. You could show him reading under a tree by a river in the picture. So you wouldn't need to use those words. You could let the picture do a lot of that work. And you could also have him sitting on the wing of an airplane and say, Adam's reading. And that that picture would say something completely different. It would be a completely different kind of story. One of the things that my first manuscript's were thousands of words long, which doesn't sound that long if you're talking about a middle grade or a YA or something. But my first published book, The Watermelon Seed, in its published form is only 150 or so words long. And that came after lots and lots of editing and just cutting and hacking away, getting it down. I think the best way to figure out what you need to lose is to read it aloud, particularly if you can read it aloud with kids. Kids are a great audience in that they're very honest. They're not polite and will grin and bear it in the way that a lot of adult audiences will. If kids are bored by you, they will get up and walk away.
0: (laughs) Harshest critics ever.
1: If a part of a story is uh, dragging on a little too long, or if you're rambling, like I have a tendency to, as you can probably tell, they'll let you know pretty quickly.
0: (laughs) That's a very good point. Before having the kids come in and being your perfect market research and surveyors, you did mention you had... Thousands of words. Yes, that is actually really a lot for picture books. A lot, a lot, a lot. And then you hacked it all the way down to 150. In your process, because I know that you do both illustrations and you also write your own books. But then you mm-hmm. also separately do illustrations for authors who've written the text. You do both sides. For you, when you're working on your own book, where you are not only illustrating, but also writing the text, what do you normally start off with?
1: It's a great question, because I love hearing people answer this question, because Mm. everybody's process is really different. Like you, I'm super curious about process. For me, it typically is a kind of a combination of both, which is a little bit of a cheat, I know. But I draw in a sketchbook every day and I oftentimes will draw characters and sometimes those characters keep appearing and it gets me thinking as to whether or not they have a story that they want to tell. For my picture books, though, the first drafts are always Microsoft Word documents and I'd write the text as simply as I can. And then as I'm writing it, I'm thinking about maybe what the pictures can do. And I'll do a little art note in parentheses that says he's under a tree or he's on the wing of an airplane or like whatever it may be. Then I will go back to the picture phase and see if maybe that character that I was thinking is actually gonna work with these stories. And that's usually what I send my editor that I work with now. My process now is, I have an idea. I think it's pretty good, but I'm not really sure if I'm too in my own head and I need to show it to somebody I trust. And I trust my editor, Rotem, at Disney Hyperion. I'll send her the Word document and maybe a sketch and I'll say, what do you think? Is there anything here? Should I keep working on this? And she is supremely talented at sort of being able to pull the good bits out of me, pull the mm. story out of the idea that I have. You know, maybe sometimes I just have an idea and she'll be able to chisel it down. Yeah, chisel out exactly is a great way to think of it. Like give shape
2: mm-hmm. to
1: the story that's in that bigger idea. That has been my process working with her. We're now working on our seventh and eighth books together. I also write nonfiction books books myself and those are you know much more research driven and I have an idea for telling a certain kind of history and the research is a much bigger part of the process Mm -hmm. and it's figuring out I get so excited about this historical (laughs) event or this person and I want to tell everyone everything every little detail and it's just finding the way to read 20 books and watch 10 movies, documentaries about it, and then find out a way to tell the story in 2000 words. You know,
0: I really admire you for that. That's insane. I know that you mentioned sometimes next to the text, you'll put in parentheses, sketch or draw airplane, for example, right here.
2: Mm-hmm. One
0: of our listeners, Kristen Britt, she'd love to know how do you approach sketching out your stories and picture book? Let's say you already have parentheses like what you give an idea of what you should sketch then what mm-hmm. do you do from there
1: what i do i've developed a process now where this year 2017 i had eight books published Jeez. <laughs> so that means that last year i illustrated eight book that's a ton of work too much work for one person I've yeah and but my process is fairly streamlined in that i have these pdfs these sheets that i've created where they have little tiny thumbnail size, blank rectangles that represent pages. And there's 40 of them or 48 of them or 24 of them, however many pages are in the particular kind of book that I'm doing on each page. And I'm able to do thumbnail sketches. They call them thumbnail sketches because they're they're teeny tiny. They're only like an inch high. I do tiny little sketches like that of That's the entire so book. Cute. They actually are really cute because they're so small, they have to be expressive. You have to show, oh, he's happy here, so it's just like a big goofy smile. They get refined from there. And I have in the past, you know, shared those on my blog and on Twitter, and I've found that a lot of people, they either use the ones that I created or they use something very similar that they've made themselves. But the benefit is that you can see the entire picture book on one sheet of paper. And if you think about each spread as being a different shot in a film.
0: Yeah, I was going to say that sounds like storyboarding.
1: It's exactly like storyboarding. So, you know, from storyboarding, you don't want things to feel monotonous. You want to change things up from shot to shot. And the picture book has this very unique opportunity in the way that it's read either with a child or two children or a child breeding by themselves. They have the page turn. It's not a moving image. It's them pausing ingesting everything that they see on the page and then flipping to the next page and that moment, that one or two seconds, gives you an opportunity to, to really create some tension or something surprising or whatever it may be. Having those little tiny thumbnails on one sheet of paper allows me to see the whole book with that scope and see the rhythm of it, how it's worked. Yeah, the whole pace of it. Exactly.
0: I totally get storyboarding, but I never thought about that similar style for picture books. Again, as a consumer, I would so be down to buy that just to see the process. Process, I would be so excited. You should bid it and see if you'd be interested in it. There's something about the behind-the-scenes process that's so special and so rare. Not many people show what the behind-the-scenes is like, but you did mention that you do share it sometimes. I can see so many people being interested in wanting to have that and hang it up on their wall.
1: You're giving me an idea now. I have another book with Disney Hyperion coming out in April, and wouldn't it be cool if I made a little zine version of like how I made this book and had Little thumbnail sketches and
0: yes you better get <laughs> on it greg i'm serious
1: i'll be sure to send you one
0: i would love that
1: then when i send my little thing with baker's twine i can include the little scene ah, and see? it's like a little there oh man there we go
0: greg, greg you a genius
1: yeah i got the idea from you i got no the, no I no get...
0: <laughs> you ran with it even more let me tell you you caught that ball and you just went for it i would love to discuss the 12 days of christmas because i know that sure has come out and this is something that I would love for our listeners to have in their homes. It's just so adorable. I have it as a coffee table book, FYI. We do these private Facebook group live videos. I'll hop on our amazing loyal listeners who've been with us for a long time or new ones who really love the show, join the private Facebook group. We check in about our writing and sometimes I try to go at least monthly live videoing with them and just to catch up with them and I'll show them a book unboxing.
1: I love unboxing (laughs) videos. Yeah.
0: (laughs) When I showed them your book, everyone was like, it's so cute. I
1: love my Christmas
0: book. I just had to let you know that.
1: Thank you so much.
0: I'm looking through your pages right now. I noticed when you said... Earlier in our conversation, you choose about three or four colors. I noticed that here, and I'm starting to see that now. That's why I love the behind-the-scenes talks, because now I'm, I can read through the book again and see it in a different way and seeing it more like your techniques. How was this process so that listeners, when they pick up the book, they can read it like in different ways and different versions?
1: Thank you so much for the kind words about that. I am really thrilled with how it came out, I have to say. Yeah. <laughs> it's my <laughs> biggest picture book ever. It's 56 pages. And it was a lot of work, drawing all those crazy gifts that arrive. I really love Christmas books. I don't know what it is. I don't come from a religious family. We definitely celebrated Christmas, but it was more of a gift-giving secular tradition
0: I'm the same way. I'm not really religious. I was raised Buddhist, but we all celebrate Christmas. It
1: is. It's about the tradition. I'm big into tradition. I mean, my wife and I last night carved pumpkins for our front porch. As I'm separating the inside of the pumpkins from the seeds so I can bake the seeds, I'm like, what am I doing We live a block from a Whole Foods, and it's like, I could just go buy a bag of pumpkin seeds for like $5 or something. There's something
0: different about doing it yourself. I'm sure you felt so productive and felt so good eating those seeds, knowing that you picked it out one by one and watched it.
1: It's so good. It's about the tradition and listening to the soundtrack from Nightmare Before Christmas while we were doing it. And Christmas is much the same for me. You know, I always watch Charlie Brown's Christmas movie special. Mm. I always watch the Grinch and I just have always been attracted to Christmas books like around that time of year picture books in particular I just can't help picking them up Patrick McDonald's book I think is the one I bought last year I always get one Christmas book at least per season and I just really wanted to make a beautiful Christmas book and the 12 days of Christmas has definitely been done many times but I think it's typically done in kind of a serious way where a different kind of illustrator from myself, it will really serve as sort of a showcase for how beautiful they can make something, which you know, I definitely respect and there's a place for that, but that's just not who I am as a bookmaker. I definitely try to make things a little funnier and play with your expectations a little bit. I wanted to make a funny version of The 12 Days of Christmas and it's about this little elephant character who is bringing gifts to his friend who is also an elephant And her parent, who is watching all of this unfold and is curious, but thinks it's cute when he shows up with a partridge in a pear tree and then is a little concerned when a couple of turtle doves show up and then three French hens. And by the time there's, you know, seven swans a-swimming and (laughs) eight maids a-milking and nine ladies dancing, he becomes more and more enraged. (laughs) And at the end of the book, though you find out that maybe he's just upset because no one's giving him a gift. He gets a gift for himself, and I won't spoil and tell everybody what it is, but it all sort of works out in the end.
0: I'm just like flipping through as you're describing this, and I'm like, oh, this is so cool. I just saw it a different way again. For listeners listening in who have the book, or not, grab a copy for sure, and you should read through this as Greg sharing with
1: us. One of my favorite spreads is, she's sort of gotten a partridge in a pear tree, two turtle doves, three French hens, four calling birds, and on the fifth day, there's sort of a pause, where it says, like, on the fifth day of Christmas, and you turn the page, and the little boy shows up with five golden rings, and the (laughs) parent is standing there with uh, this bag of bulk bird seed, and he's saying, phew, all right, no more birds. (laughs) (laughs) Five golden rings, you know, I can live with that, that's fine. The next day, she shows up with six geese.
0: <laughs> then he's holding that one ring.
1: Where he's bending it. <laughs>
0: I know, he's like, Ugh. Oh my gosh, these little details, it's crazy. You are so brilliant. You throw in all these little details that you can honestly read through it more than 10 times and you'll catch something new again. No, I'm serious. (laughs) (laughs) My girlfriend and I were saying our friends are having babies popping left and right. I'm happy for them and it's awesome. But we're just like, Greg's book would be such an amazing gift for our friend's baby. We're celebrating his birthday next weekend and this is actually perfect timing. And such a great gift for him to grow into and grow up with.
1: That's awesome. And I mean, I didn't really think about that as I started making books. Obviously, I've always felt strongly about how important they were to me as a child. But it's been really sort of enlightening and humbling after five years or six years of doing this to meet kids who the watermelon seed was their first book of Mm -hmm. mine that they got. And now they're eight years old. And they've read all of my books and they're starting to get interested in the nonfiction ones. It's so humbling and amazing to think about the kind of impact that I can have with this opportunity I've been given. It's very different then working alone at the studio working in a room drawing stuff all day can feel you're just on your own and then that's what I really love about going to bookstores and school visits and talking to people like you who are so like engaged with their audience on a regular basis Mm. and you can see the impact that this stuff is having And I think you should buy it for your friends (laughs) because Tuesday upcoming, when we're recording this, Tuesday is Halloween. So as you know, Christmas starts on Wednesday.
0: Oh, yes, (laughs) that's true. Like the Christmas music's going to start
1: playing. Yep, it's already there.
0: (laughs) By the way, that brings me back to what did you carve for your pumpkin? I also did a pumpkin carving this past Sunday.
1: My wife did. It almost looks like an emoji who's exasperated and rolling her eyes. I did a bunch of sketches and came up with a monster face.
0: (gasps) I see it. I'm on your Instagram. Instagram. I'm so creepy. Yeah,
1: I just posted on Instagram last night.
0: I love his ears. I made a Totoro. I drew Totoro holding a umbrella. The part where it was his ear, it was almost connecting it was super close to the umbrella. I accidentally broke the whole thing. So he looked like a weirdly, oddly morphed, diseased Totoro. So I used <laughs> a toothpick and I stabbed it together just so it stays in place. I was so proud. I was like, yes, because one of my friends, he had a great idea. He's like, Yin, just use a toothpick, try that. And I'm like, yes, you're right, it works. And I brought it home. But here's the thing. I left it in the car for two days because I was in such a rush. Oh, no! my girlfriend was setting up this dinner pop up event in L.A. So it was just like so much back and forth driving from San Diego to L.A. and back. I forgot about it. Then my girlfriend brought it out of the car after we got back to San Diego, put it at the front door. Last night, went out to get food. I peeked in. The whole thing turned black. Oh, yeah. (laughs) But I'm glad that your pumpkin is looking fine and that you got a chance to eat. The seeds. I didn't get a chance to eat my seeds. It was at my friend's pumpkin carving party and Uh they ended up throwing it out because they're not into doing that, but I am.
1: I actually did the toothpick thing too. You did? As good as it looks on Instagram, I tried to carve the The outside of the rind so that the eyes and the teeth were kind of yellow instead of the orange of the outside of the pumpkin. And when I was doing that, I knocked one of the pupils (gasps) off and. Had a toothpick and made it right.
0: <laughs> Thank you for sharing that with me. Now everyone's going to know our little secrets and they're going right. to look at your Instagram photo. Was it the left or right people?
1: So if you're looking at the pumpkin, it's the left one.
0: Hey, it looks really good.
1: I did what I could to sort of hide it. as Hey, well as that's I
0: awesome. I mean, I did my best and it still looked real wonky. That is impressive. I love that you sketched it yourself too. I totally just Googled Totoro pumpkin carving tracing paper, whatever. But then I just tried sketching it with a black permanent marker from looking at the photo in my phone onto Mm. the pumpkin. And I made him a little bit too scrawny and skinny looking. And I was like, "Mm, this isn't right. He's supposed to be like super round. So I made him even rounder. But
1: it was really fun. In 12 days of Christmas, just one more thing that we do a tradition is we hang stockings and we have a little gas burning fireplace in our house on the title page of the 12 days of Christmas. That's actually a drawing of our mantle and our fireplace. We have it tiled like that with these Mexican tiles we got. And it's just like a little piece of our home that I was able to put into. And if you look on the book that the little elephant is reading on the half title page, it's got a K on the title. My wife's name is K and there's a little K hidden in all of my books. A little shout out to her.
0: That's so cute. You are genius. I'm looking through your Instagram because I see that you have shared the book covers I see that you shared the elephant holding that book with a tree on it you should also take a photo of the one with the fireplace and only if you're comfortable sharing photos of your home
1: of the real fireplace of the
0: real fireplace
1: i should yeah
0: i see you in august 14th i sound so creepy right now so you have the virtual reality over your head
1: that's not our house, though. We were visiting the Bay Area. And friends of ours in San Francisco oh. work in virtual reality, and I was <laughs> looking at their it's stuff. so awesome. I try to add little things like that. My last book, Good Night, Al, it came out with Disney Hyperion. And Al destroys his house <laughs> in the oh. process of trying to figure out what is causing this noise. Oh. And in one of the scenes, <laughs> he spreads all of his records, all of his LPs out on a floor, and it's 10 of my favorite records or something. Oh, you know? So I try to add little hints of, oh, Greg Bazzoli really likes the Ramones. I bet that tells me something about his personality. Now I know a little bit more about him.
0: That's awesome.
1: And whatever I can do to get kids to listen to Fugazi and the Clash, nice. that's all I need to do.
0: Nice, that's really <laughs> clever. Thank you for sharing that, Greg. Before we wrap it up, is it okay if I can ask you three rapid-fire questions that we usually ask our listeners sure. at the end? A lot of our listeners are trying to find ways of earning income while working on the craft. Is there any tips that you have on income
1: for artists? Sure. I would say the word that popped in my head was diversification. Mm. I mean, I think just having many plates spinning is the way that I was able to do it for a long time. I taught a class here. I taught at a summer camp there. I worked part time at this place. And then I would be able to do the odd illustration job until I was able to start doing it full time. So I think that is a big one. And I think you'd be surprised at how many grants are available out there, too. And oh. I think that stuff is worth looking into as well. I know for people living in New York, that's called NIFA, the New York Probably Foundation for the Arts, and they post all of the New York based grants opportunities out there. And Philadelphia has a similar one. So I'm sure in whatever state people may be in, there's a webpage where all that stuff is listed. And, you know, a lot of people just don't apply for that stuff. So the
0: grants, do they award people and give them grants? to work on their writing?
1: Sometimes, yeah. I know people that have gotten grants like that where it may be $5,000 or something like that, and that enables you to not work for a month or two at mm-hmm. you know whatever other job you're doing and gives you time to write on that novel. I would say the best resource for me in terms of writing kids' books was SCBWI. I don't know if you've ever heard of yes, that. Yes, definitely
0: Society heard of Society for
1: Children's Book Writers and Illustrators. and mm-hmm. That's not really going to help to generate income per se, But that is the number one networking spot for people that are making kids' books or are aspiring to make kids' books, for sure.
0: I remember we had Dan Santat on the show, and I think he was the first one to mention SCBWI. He mentioned it, and, and he shared his story about it, and I didn't realize how powerful that organization is. And you're right, it may not be direct money that you're earning being there and meeting friends and learning. It will eventually lead to something.
1: I think finding your tribe is super important. And I'll say my editor that I mentioned earlier, who we're now working on seventh and eighth books together she saw my stuff at scbwi and that's where that's how we started talking
0: did you go with a portfolio
1: i did yeah they have a portfolio and they invite a showcase for portfolios and they invite all the industry people to come and look at the portfolios and take postcards and i was a few days after one of the big conferences was back at my day job doing admin work at a public relations firm and got an email from her and the rest is history
0: geez okay So you definitely advise listeners to go prepared with work. Is this something that people should attend even if they don't have a portfolio or don't have anything in the works yet?
1: It's for writers and illustrators. So even if you're not an illustrator, I mean, they do have breakout sessions that are specialized for people that want to make picture books or people that want to write middle grade or whatever the case may be. I would say it depends on whether or not the money's there to make the full commitment for it. If I wouldn't go probably, to one of the big ones as an illustrator without a full portfolio that I was Mm. ready to show. You know, people can sometimes overthink those things. Like they can be 10 really strong images. It doesn't need to be much more than that. And if you have a picture book concept, you don't need to have it finished. Actually, I think the publishers aren't really looking for finished stuff. They have editors, they have art directors. They want to see that you have potential and they want to work with you to get your best work out Mm. of you so if you show up and say my book is finished it could be something as simple as they don't like the type the font that you chose or something and they'll just be like I wonder if they would be interested in changing it whereas if someone shows up with pencil sketches obviously it's still at a stage where they could help shape yeah it's malleable right it's their job that's what they love to do so I would say the thing to do is they have local chapters all over the place and sort of just join your local chapter and it's less of a cost commitment. The membership I think is maybe $80 a year and the local stuff tends to be pretty cheap and get a feel for it and hopefully some friends out of that. The online resources that they have are great too for illustrators sending out postcards and all that kind of stuff. It's all there. I know this is supposed to be rapid fire.
0: No, no, no. I love it. Thank you so much. I said this is going to be quick, but then I end up dragging it longer because you said something about it's not like they're looking for you to pitch your concept of a picture book. I'm not familiar with the world of picture books, but now when you said that, I'm like, oh wait, yeah, people have concepts for picture books. I know that you say you have a lot of back and forths with your editor, and you have a very long history together, so you guys know each other, you trust each other with vision, and you you get each other. Do you normally have to share the picture book concepts? Is it similar to storyboarding that we were talking about, and then writing little texts under each thumbnail?
1: I think I was just speaking generally. I didn't mean to cast a specific term. I've seen picture book manuscripts or however you want to call them, take many forms. I mean, I've seen Microsoft Word documents. I've seen full color dummies, which again, I would advise against. I think if you have a, it's called a dummy where it's the words and images in sketch form but bound together. If you have that and you can show that you've thought about the pacing and you've figured out the story and it all seems to be working in an arc that you like, I think that is the absolute most that people are looking for. I would say the majority of illustrators that I've talked to have been to SCBWI. They just have a portfolio that shows that they can draw in whatever style that may be you know if it's super realistic or if it's cartoony or whatever just you know that you have your own style and voice and that you know how to work narratively meaning that you can show the same character progress or over and over in different poses or different situations and So that you're not just going to draw the one character and you can only draw it that one time and you can never do it again. So I think sometimes it's good to have a character sheet where you show this is what she looks like when she's happy and this is when she's sad and this is when she's angry and this is when she's exasperated. That kind of stuff I think is really helpful.
0: Nice. Thank you so much for that. Along the same lines of this is normally I ask authors any querying tips I'm not sure with the picture book world, is there any querying
1: involved? Regardless of whether you are an author and an illustrator, or if you are not an illustrator but working on text alone but you want them to be picture books, or if you don't really do the writing but you want to illustrate books, I think that there are probably similar but slightly different procedures for getting work. Mm-hmm. I think that the SEBWI thing, you know, it's, it's not the only way to do it. If it's cost prohibitive or if it's not your cup of tea, if you don't like the scene, they're not the only gatekeeper. I think they're just like a good place where a lot of people tend to be and see work. They're a great organization. I really like the work that they do. So they're my shorthand. But if you are querying people, I think that a lot of publishers now, just because tying back to what we talked about before with the Internet making everything so accessible for artists, Mm -hmm. I think that they may be inundated with a lot of queries or, you know, a lot of submissions. And so they oftentimes, I found, won't take submissions from people that aren't agented, that don't have literary agents. Oh. and they sort of use literary agents as sort of like gatekeepers. They literally can't look at everything. Now, a lot of publishers do take submissions uh, that you can just send to the publisher. It just depends. And for querying, if you're a writer, I would say you have to query agents. The only advice I would say would be be yourself, be respectful of their time, be mm. kind and you know do good work. Show that you are amenable to the idea of someone else you know in this case an illustrator or an editor or an art director helping you to collaborate with this i have met people at sbwi things where i've been doing manuscript reviews for them or portfolio reviews where we sort of talk about their project and where it's at and what they could maybe do to take it to the next level you know i've met people who they're really hard working and they're really good intentioned people but they've been working on the same story for 10 years Mm. and they're not really willing to, either put it down for a little while and try something else or hear someone else's point of view. Maybe this isn't the best way to tell this story. They're just like no, this is my vision and this is the only way it can be done. As much as I can maybe admire that as an artist that's a lot of will and self belief in oneself, I wouldn't really want to work with someone like that.
2: Mm, Yeah.
1: Just having an understanding that this is a collaboration is good advice for anybody trying to get into the scene. For illustrators, really I think the only thing to do is that you just have to send postcards. I don't know if you know about this practice, but illustrators still send postcards to editors and art directors. Oh. You can get the lists, the addresses, and names of people where to send them from the SCBWI website, actually. And you can mail them off and show them that you have what it takes and interest and ability in doing narrative storytelling through your art. And I did that really early in my career. I don't do it quite as much now. I do it once or twice a year. I do a mailing. Early on, I would do it every three months or so. I have been in the Penguin offices. I'm published by Penguin too. And I've been there and met art directors for the first time and shaken their hand in their office. And then looked up on their bulletin board and seen a promo that I made five years ago that they tacked onto their wall. Wow. I thought it went out into the universe and never came back, but it was there and a few years down the line, it turns into something. So Dang. you just never know where that stuff is going to take you. You're sort of like Sisyphus, you're pushing that that rock up the yeah. hill and nothing. <laughs> rolling back down on you. I keep sending out all these postcards and they will getting back to me, but they're going out there. If 10% of the people hold on to them, and if you send out 100, that's 10 people, you've just gotten to look at your stuff.
0: Man, that was really inspiring. Thank you so much for that. I could see so many listeners really learning from that.
1: They've all fallen asleep.
0: No, no, are you kidding? I'm pretty sure they're taking notes right now. Third and final question. What are some small manageable steps that you'd advise writers to take every week or illustrators take every week towards accomplishing their goals.
1: As an illustrator, I always liked postcards because it's four by six inches, double-sided, and so you can get pretty detailed with it, but it's also not going to take over your life the way that a book dummy would, maybe. So it's sort of a manageable, a bite-sized step that you can take. If you're not sure what to work on next or you're not sure what to draw next or write next, I try to give myself small bits of time and just try to fill that time. I write every day. I'm not writing a novel or anything. I'm writing a lot of story ideas that go nowhere that I abandon later (laughs) Mm. or I'm revising something else. I try to write in the morning, usually before my wife wakes up, I will downstairs drinking coffee and pecking away at the keyboard for drawing. Similarly, if you're not sure what I should add to my portfolio or what really should I be working on, I don't know if you're familiar with Inktober, this thing on Instagram and Twitter where for the month of October, illustrators post one drawing a day that they've drawn in ink and it's called Inktober. And I've seen a lot of people turn a drawing a day, a thing where I'm just going to spend 45 minutes, half an hour, an hour every day for a month to draw this one particular thing. And that's what I'm going to post on Instagram or Facebook or Twitter or keep for myself or whatever I'm going to do with it. I've seen a lot of people get attention doing stuff like that. Interesting. I think it's good to, as I said, to like get people's attention. Mm -hmm. But if you do that, if you commit yourself to doing even Inktober, then at the end of the month of October, you've got 31 ink drawings and Mm. they might not all be of portfolio quality or whatever. Maybe you could then look at those 31 drawings and work with somebody else, have a critique group, look at it and say, what's the common thread that's running through all of these? Or which of these five should I bring to final? Or maybe you work really fast. I tend to work really fast. So maybe an hour is all you need to do to make it final. That's the thing where nobody wants to read a thousand page book, but If you read 30 pages a day, you'll be almost done after a month, that kind of thing.
0: Greg, you are so awesome. Thank you so (laughs) much. You wrapped it up perfectly. Before we conclude, please let our listeners know where they can find you on social media.
1: I'm really easy to find, actually, because it's just my name for basically everything. So it's Greg, G-R-E-G, Pizzoli, P-I-Z-Z-O-L-I. That's on Instagram, at Greg Pizzoli, Twitter, at Greg Pizzoli, Facebook, I think it's just Pozzoli. My website is my name, gregpozzoli.com. There's a link there to the store that was mentioned earlier. There
0: we go. So check check out your Etsy shop for sure. Greg, you were so awesome. Thank you so much again for your time. And I loved having
1: you on the show. I loved being here. It was really my pleasure to talk to you. Thank you very much for having me.
0: And that wraps up our episode with Greg Pozzoli. Greg, you were so awesome to have on the show, and I really enjoyed our chat. Listeners, thank you so much for hanging out and listening in. Please say hi to Greg on Twitter at Greg Pozzoli. For the books and resources mentioned in this episode, head over to 88 cupsofteacom slash podcast slash Greg dash If you enjoyed today's episode or if it helped you in any way, I would love to ask you for your support in taking a moment to subscribe to 88 Cups of Tea on iTunes. And please leave a rating and a review. Producing a podcast takes a lot of time and we put a lot of heart and soul into making 88 Cups of Tea the best that it can be. When you take those specific actions of subscribing, leaving a rating and a review, that really helps our show become more visible to new listeners who haven't heard of us before and we're really trying to get the word out about our podcast. Thank you so much in advance for helping us grow our community. Don't forget to join our private Facebook group if you want to hang out with fellow writers, storytellers and listeners from 88 Cups of Tea. I'm so excited to see you in there. You can find us at facebook.com slash groups slash 88 Cups of Tea. Have a wonderful and super productive rest of your week, and I'll catch you next Thursday. Hey, guys, it's me again. Thanks so much for listening in on 88 Cups of Tea. Go create something magical today, and I'll catch you in the next episode. Bye.